You're listening to episode five. Hello and welcome to What Leaders Know. It's the podcast for people on leadership journeys. I'm your host, Penny Beeston. I help people take their leadership to the next level. You can learn more about my leadership coaching and resources at whatleadersknow.com. Today's episode will be of interest to you if you have an eye to leadership in the scientific and research sectors. My guest today is Professor Robert Van Barneveld. Rob's leadership combines core business and commercial skills with a strong scientific background. In one area of his leadership, he brings critical thinking and analysis to the inception leadership and governance of cooperative research centres, as well as companies. Rob is an internationally recognised scientist specialising in the field of nutrition, with his core focus being grain and food production and food security. In addition to this expertise, Rob has developed extensive skills as a non-executive director and chairman over the past 10 years, and currently serves on multiple national boards and peak bodies. Rob applied his specific skills in research and development, education, corporate governance and government liaison, as he played a central role in the evolution of two very diverse cooperative research centres. The latter of the two sees Rob leaving a significant social legacy through improved outcomes for people with autism and their families. Welcome, Rob. Hi, Penny. How are you? Very well. Lovely to have you here. Rob, I begin each interview with this question, why does leadership matter? But I want to tweak it for you. Health scientists around the globe have been in the public spotlight from the very early stages of COVID. And here in Australia, we've witnessed a partnership between politicians and our chief health officers. In the US, it's been a very different story. Can you speak about why leadership matters in this context and why scientists are central to leadership during a pandemic? It's a very good question, Penny, and a nice one to start with. (laughs) I think when we talk about why does leadership matter, um, I think you can do that by exception. Look what happens when you don't have leadership. And uh, my assessment is we have plenty of leaders. We don't have a lot of leadership. It's not a, it seems to be a commodity in short supply. So just uh, aspiring to the position or having the position doesn't make you a leader. And if you want to use the COVID example with scientists interacting with uh, politicians or otherwise, scientists state the facts and they state them um, as they see them. And I think what we might be seeing from time to time is leaders just accepting those facts without actually questioning them or asking the people with the information for another angle. So here is a fact, right, if we want to cover all bases and uh, cover as much risk as possible, we're going to take position A. And you'll see that happening a lot, particularly around border closures, etc. Whereas I think if you're being a true leader and uh, showing leadership, you might uh, be a lot more questioning of some of those facts and say, well, okay, I understand that and this is what's going to make us, uh, us safe. But I have to balance a whole a whole range of things. That's my job as a leader. I'm uh, I'm walking a tightrope, and I've got my little balancing pole. And if I don't have that balance on both sides, I'm going to fall off. So yes, I accept your facts. I need to also consider X, Y, and Z. Could you please give me information that might allow me to get a bit more balance in the in the argument? And I see that as as where leadership matters. It helps people go forward without falling off the tightrope. So leadership's a balancing act, balancing different input and perspectives to arrive at a final decision. Yes, that's right. And I think, um, you know, when you are a leader and you're showing leadership, the first rule is you're not going to keep everyone happy all the time. And, um, and you have, again, it comes back to that balance. But ultimately, 
if you're a leader and you've defined your destination and you've articulated to everybody where we're going and how long it's going to take to get there, you've then got to motivate them to get on the bus and understand, well, there are going to be some bumps in the road and I know you wanted to stop over here for a meal, but we've got to get there in this time. So before we leave this particular question then, do you think that it's harder for politicians to lead because of the confounding pressures that they face that are polarised? Look, I have a lot of empathy for politicians. <laughs> <laughs> I hold two passports, so I never get tempted to be one. Um, I mean, politicians are under immense scrutiny and um, their primary job is to get re-elected. Um, because then they have, have some chance of, of uh, articulating their, their vision. But there are so many of these competing pressures, people forget that they're actually there to govern and govern for the people and, you know, sometimes they'll make decisions that aren't popular and sometimes that might result in them not being re-elected. So it's a, it's a vicious circle as far as, as I can tell and unfortunately we've, we've got into such a rapid cycle that with so many changes of leaders and so many changes of leaders and so many competing priorities and so much scrutiny that um, we actually never get anything done. Let me um, take you back to 1993 when you were awarded the Australian Society of Animal Production Most Outstanding Young Scientist Award. How did winning this award drive the direction and energy in your career? I respect your research, Penny, because when... when when you mentioned that I'd won this award, I actually had to go and check that I had. <laughs> I um, had totally forgotten about it. But it's, it's very interesting that you picked that one because it was a landmark award for me in my career. And the reason it was a landmark award is it was the first one I had actually won. I had been in previous uh, runnings for awards in the past. So I was always the bridesmaid. And what that award taught me was you have to work to win. It's never going to fall in your lap. And uh, once I understood that and knew how to win, uh, then I had a lot more success in the future. But it was very much a case of it's not coming to you. There's no, you don't get recognition because it's your turn. You have to work for it and earn it. And that's what that award taught me. So it was actually a pivotal moment in my, my career. Thank you for reminding me <laughs> of it. It's nice to reflect. <laughs> So if we have listeners who are on their own journeys to leadership, uh, what's a takeaway for them from that experience? Uh, well, you have to work for you have to work for it. It's not going to come to you. And um, that sounds trivial, but in today's world, everyone wins a prize. And uh, when you want to get to some of these um, exceptional awards or, or really standout awards, don't assume anything. You have to cover every angle, work as hard as you can, and um, if you deserve it, you'll win it. But it's not going to fall in your lap. You, you've got a choice. You can give up and say, oh, well, it was all too hard and I missed out, or you can uh, sit back, reflect, work out why you missed out and use that for the next time you're having a go. And I think that's the important part. You've got to learn from your failures. And it appears that we're, we're very afraid to fail these days, but they're the most important parts in developing your career and certainly developing your leadership roles because you need to know what it feels like to not succeed. So, Rob, can you give listeners a brief overview of the structure and purpose of a cooperative research centre? The cooperative research centres were established by the federal government in the 90s and the idea was to bring uh, institutional research closer to industry and it has been one of the most successful research investment programs the federal government's ever run. 
and it's recognised worldwide for its innovation and really does bring industry and institutional research together. So that's that's what it's designed to do and that extends across a very wide range of disciplines. I know they're very complex and with those complexities are challenges for leaders that don't necessarily show up in other leadership roles. What are the challenges that are unique to leading and governing CRCs and how do you manage those challenges? The first one is um, you've got to get past the fact that the people doing the research are often the ones most familiar with the CRC program as opposed to people in industry. The people doing the research, that's also 100% of their life, whereas for industry, it's only a part of their life. So getting that priority up on the industry side and um, then tempering the researcher's aspirations to do research that industry actually wants, that's the challenge. Because quite often people just want to research what they've been trained in because that's what they like, that's what they're good at, and they want money to do that. Sometimes priorities for industry are very different to that. And when you bring a CRC together, you have to understand from the end user perspective what you want to achieve, clearly articulate what that is, and then you go and bring on the people that can help you solve that problem. You don't just collect a group of your mates who want to work on topic A. And sometimes that creates some angst. But, you know, you have a researcher that's very skilled in their field, but it just isn't relevant to what you're trying to do in this particular research program. So it comes back to my comment before about not being all things to all people. Stand your ground. This is what we need to achieve. This is who we need to have help us do it. And if you can do that, we'd love to have you on board. If not, I'm sorry, you'll have to wait for the next one. So you are balancing very diverse stakeholder groups, and I imagine this adds to the complexity of leading CRCs. They are, and it is a a complex process. A lot of people have never heard of a CRC. You go to them and you're saying, hey, I want you to contribute money, real cash, and if you put this in there, I promise I'll look after it and I'll give it to these really good researchers. Um, On the other side of it, unfortunately, we have a research environment that all too often involves a researcher getting a grant doing a three-year project, writing a report, getting some papers, perhaps training a student, and when they're kind of two and a half years through that, they're looking for the next one, and that's their cycle. That's not of interest to us in a CRC. We have tangible outcomes that we need to achieve, and actually getting those stakeholders to understand, you know, we're, we're investing with you, we do expect an outcome, and it has to be tangible and it's got to be delivered on time. That's a, an interesting management process. <laughs> keeping industry motivated, interested, um, comfortable that the progress is being made, reminding them of why we're there. That's a challenge. And then, of course, on on the end user side, quite often you have participants that are commercial competitors. And so getting them to play in the same playing field can be a challenge as well. Given those challenges, what do you do to influence stakeholders to bring them into a program and keep them engaged? I actually, in the CRC environment, it's Mm. an environment where I I really enjoyed leadership roles and I don't find it difficult because once I have that value proposition from the end users and have been able to articulate what we want to do, every decision thereafter becomes easy. I know where we're going. You can just keep bringing people back to that map Mm. saying, look, that's where we need to go. Now, that doesn't mean you're totally inflexible and things don't change, but you have to keep remembering why you're there and keep bringing people back to what you're trying to achieve overall. And there's no different in business. No, but I suspect there are businesses that are less complex 
There are. Unfortunately, <laughs> I'm not involved with any of those. <laughs> I'd like to talk to you about your passion for social change in the area of autism. What's the driver that saw you establish Australia's first autism CRC and continue to be vested in its success? I'm not sure you're going to like my answer to this. What's my passion for social change in autism? My passion in this area, it is such a critical area and it is extremely complex, as you're well aware. Um, There is not a one-size-fits-all solution, if you want a better word, not that I'm looking for a a cure or anything like that. Autism defines people and and it's something that um, represents diversity and that's something we want to embrace. In the research sphere and in the service provider sphere, the thing that motivated me was that for such an important area, there was very much this historical approach of having a sausage sizzle or uh, doing this tiny little piece of research with no funding. And we really had to take a far more pragmatic commercial approach to coming up with another path. That's what motivated me. And we've been very successful doing that, either through Autism Queensland or through the Autism CRC as some examples. It was, you've got to take this to another level. And we continue on that journey. If you look at the NDIS today, it's 30% roughly of their participants have autism as their primary diagnosis. That is astounding. And yet, how much are we investing in it? Or, you know, it's just a massive disconnect. So that's my passion in this field, trying to make sure that the resources that are allocated in this area are actually reflective of of, um, how extensive autism is within the community. You're very clear-sighted about the barriers for people with autism, particularly around equitable access to employment, where the value add for business in employing a person with autism is one of your drivers. Yeah. I mean, there have been massive learnings on the journey from my perspective. Within the company that I run, we run an autistic employment program. Despite how many benefits extend to the people involved in that program, it is about recognising their diverse skill sets and their diverse way of thinking. The driver is what having them in the business brings to the business, not what the business is doing for them. By taking um, diverse thinkers into the business, we change the whole HR profile. It's, you know, if they're accommodated, everyone's accommodated. It's better for everybody and and, uh, the old stairs and ramps scenario. So, um, you know, that's, that's what motivates me. I want to stay with diversity for a bit. If you were addressing a graduating class of Year 12 students in this COVID-impacted year, and this group composed a high percentage of STEM students heading for a career in science, what insights would you share with them, Rob? I have lots to say to them. I hope their parents agree with some of the comments. But um, the first thing I'd say to them is, look, um, I am sure your final year of school hasn't been as you had planned it, right? So it's important that you um, don't dwell on what you had envisaged your final year would be. You work with what you've got. So be grateful that you've got through high school and you've now got an opportunity to go into, you know, a university degree. When you're talking about science, I'm obviously biased, but uh, when you talk about science as a basis for leadership, you're a rare commodity. I mean, scientists tend to have better strategic skills and that isn't something that necessarily comes naturally to everybody. So when you move into leadership roles, be that, well, let's say in business, I mean, there's plenty of lawyers and accountants and people with businesses, business degrees out there, but they're all the same. If a scientist has some understanding of that, that world, 
um, they're bringing a diverse thought process into the system and you're in very high demand. So don't believe that by being a scientist you're actually cutting off a lot of other opportunities for yourself in the future. And with our current Gen Z or whatever we're up to, you know, my understanding is a lot of them are going to have seven careers rather than seven jobs or, you know, certainly the way it was 50 years ago. So if if they want to keep their options open, having that base skill set in STEM gives them a tremendous range, far more than a lot of other disciplines. It's important for these kids, I imagine, to have a view beyond the lab or the library as well. It is. I think the other thing, that, you know, if, I'm, if I was talking to my daughter or... Uh, anyone else. The the advice is your future is important to you and actually only you. In terms of moving on, you need to decide what you're going to do for someone else. And that's going to be driving you for every part of your career. If you're working as a scientist, the research you should be doing should be helping somebody and you should never forget who who you're helping and why you're helping them. If you're in business, you're there to help your shareholders earn money. That's your job. You've got to keep remembering who you service. If you're in a not-for-profit, you're servicing your, your members or it's always the same. Who are you going to help? It's actually not about you. You remember that and remember the fact that it's not, you know, people aren't really, they don't need to know about you. Your actions will speak louder than your words. That should be your motivation. If you think like that and you're comfortable in yourself, your future's your oyster. You're going to achieve a lot. The power of purpose is better understood nowadays. Do you think that returns to shareholders will be enough of a purpose to keep the new generations engaged? Or do you think that the underlying social purpose will be essential in the corporate space to keep talent engaged? What are your thoughts? That's a very um, interesting question from the perspective that I don't think there is as much difference as people expect between not-for-profits and for-profits and how the business should run. So the primary difference between a not-for-profit and a for-profit is uh, one will distribute dividends out of the business to someone else, whereas not-for-profits won't. doesn't mean they don't have to run efficiently and earn money and focus on cash flow and all those things. Um, If you look at some ASX-listed companies, my view is they forget who they are actually there to serve and forget what business they're running. They're more interested in, you know, selling a story to the analysts or or doing something that influences the share price without actually running the business. I have the counterfactual view that if you run the business and you run that successfully, the rest will take care of itself. If you're going to run that business successfully in this day and age, people have to have clear mission mission and vision um, and you really need as a, an organisation to have every staff member attuned with the values. But on top of that now, you, you need a purpose and what I call a just cause, which is all very Simon Sinek. But having a just cause that's more altruistic, that gives the staff something to aspire to beyond the business that the business represents, that gives them ownership and motivation that you're not going to get just by saying, let's have a mission, go off and do it, and we've got to make money for the shareholders. Now I want to talk a little more about leadership. I suspect there's a perception in the community that science doesn't provide a platform for leadership. Beyond CRCs and universities, where else do you see scientists coming to the fore as leaders? Well, I run a large business. Apparently, it's the 117th largest business in Australia, private business. But 
Uh, I'm in that role because I'm a scientist and that's because the shareholders recognise that agriculture these days is a science-based business and they need someone who can uh, take that science into practice. So the bridge between um, having good science knowledge and good commercial knowledge gives you a, a unique skill set that is in high demand. So that's that's how it's applied in this instance. So I see it being able to be applied in any sphere. What you've got to do, though, is get out of your lab and and start thinking about how you apply your research in a wider sphere. And uh, that in itself is a big step. It will bring you into leadership roles that will develop your skills and they can then be used in a much broader spectrum of, of uh, activities. So, Rob, you mentioned people with a science or STEM background are often more strategic thinkers, but it's not always the case. So what else can they bring to the table? It's true. Not everybody is a strategic thinker and there are plenty of scientists who aren't. That's a a good observation. Um, With a science background, however, you have a good understanding of scientific method. You have um, a good understanding of how things work. And with that, you have confidence so that if um, one of the so-called experts in whatever field is providing you with information, you have the confidence to challenge that information. You don't let them get away with flippant statements. You don't let them get away with a poor method. And you are confident enough in your own abilities to actually challenge and say, well, I'm not quite sure that is, you know, totally correct. How have you, arisen, how have you arrived at that conclusion? Provide me with a little bit more evidence because... As a scientist, that's what you're looking for. You want data, you want evidence, and you are trained to look at data and say, that's not, the data is not telling me what you're telling me, so I need another angle. Or have you considered looking at that data, another angle? You know, what if we went and did this? Would this support that approach? So it brings a lot of confidence and it brings uh, the ability to look at data a problem in multiple ways and not just take advice. And that can be from anyone from a lawyer to another scientist to uh, an accountant or an auditor. You are confident enough to challenge them based on what they're putting in front of you. COVID's changing our daily exposure to data that matters. And I suspect it will make us more discerning as we interpret information in the public sphere. Yesterday, I was listening to Dr. Norman Swan as he interviewed a leader of a for-purpose organisation. His questions reflected his scientific background, where he asked about data. And the person being interviewed was only armed with anecdotal information. And this seemed to weaken her position. That's exactly right. And that's a very good example. I mean, there are everyone's got an opinion. And a lot of opinions these days, unfortunately, are based on a lot of misinformation. So cutting through the misinformation, challenging uh, an interpretation and making sure it's not an opinion um, and making sure that interpretation actually has something to back it up, that's, that's gold. You can use that in so many parts of your life. So again, it's about bringing diversity into the business and recognising the strength of having someone with a science background, particularly, I imagine, in the crucial decision-making process where assumptions are always problematic. Yeah, and I mean, each member of a team has a role to play and their collective insight will give you a very good, um, a lot of confidence that the the journey you're going to take or the path you're going to take is the right one. So if you look at my leadership team in the business I run, I have everyone from a guy who started life as a floor boy in an abattoir to a scientist with a PhD who's, you know, renowned in his specific field. And they play at the same level, but they bring very different things to the table. So Mm. 
when you're talking about um, HR around management of people that work in an abattoir, if I applied my scientific approach to managing that workforce, it would be a total disaster. I don't understand them. I don't understand um, necessarily things that are important to them, whereas that member of my leadership team can say, well, have you considered this? Have you considered this? And you sit back and go, of course, you know, that's that's really important information. On the other side of it, you know, we could be interpreting some shelf life data or quality data and, you know, come to this conclusion that the world's about to end. The scientist chips in and says, look, let's not panic here. That change looks big on that graph, but uh, actually it's not material. It's, it's not going to be statistically significant. Let's just see if it, play, you know, let's see how that plays out before we go and take some knee-jerk action that's not going to result in a good outcome. So you need that diversity and it comes back to that basic premise, communication, diversity and uh, having someone who can distill all that information into the uh, optimum path, if you like. It won't be good for everybody, but it'll be the best one uh, to take you on the journey. Rob, I want to come back to your own leadership now. Have you had mentors across your career and can you share some insight about the influence they've had on you? I haven't had uh, mentors per se. I probably need a few in a few areas and I, I will pursue those in all seriousness. You, you're not above that and you do need help and you do need other views. A defining moment was um, the uh, the deputy director of the government organisation I was working for. Um, uh, I had a review early in my my research career and I was doing a big jump and on paper I had done more than enough to qualify for this reclassification and being a young scientist who'd won some awards I obviously had a big opinion of myself. So I sat down with this guy who, you know, it was almost a walnut cracking an egg that um, this deputy director was doing my reclassification but, oh, sorry, sledgehammer cracking an egg. Um and he said, well, you, your CV is very impressive and, yes, on paper you qualify for this reclassification, but I need you to tell me that if I go to a farmer who lives out the back of South Australia and I ask him what you've done for him, what's he going to say? And he kept asking me that question for two hours until I conceded <laughs> that he'll say nothing, I've done nothing. <laughs> Um, and it really put me back in my place and, and kind of underpinned some of the comments I made earlier. You've got to understand why you're doing what you do and who the beneficiary is and you need to make sure they understand how they can use it. And so that opens up um, a lot of, uh, you know, focus on communication, a lot of focus on clearly articulating why you do what you do and how you're going to use it and trying to um, ensure that everyone's able to take advantage of that. That was sounds trivial, but that was no. one of the most defining moments in my career. So he was indeed a mentor to you because he had a deep impact on your professional development that was going to serve you well for the rest of yeah. your career. Yeah, and it was a pretty simple review from his perspective, yeah. just kept asking the same question for two hours until he got a satisfactory answer. Rob, at the front end of our conversation, we touched on politics. I know the politics of culture can play out in international business negotiations and you've had enormous experience in this space. So I want to round out a conversation today and ask you, what are the challenges and what are your insights? Again, an interesting question, Benny. Um, I think, well, you really need to embed yourself in in those other countries to appreciate what it means to work with another culture. Um, 
often Australia and New Zealand are grouped as one. If you've done business in New Zealand, you will know that is absolutely untrue. The New Zealanders are very different people to Australians. So where people assume we're all the same, even that, there's there's massive differences in doing business in those two countries. If you then take that to Asia, well, you go to a whole new level. And it is about relationships. It is about understanding different cultures. It is about um, understanding that your culture isn't necessarily the one that should dominate at all. You can't go and do business like that. And I think a lot of people make the mistake when they go into Asia is just assume because there's a large number of people there that if you can get a market, you're going to have success. That's not the case. You can have success. It will last only as long as the relationship and uh, the bigger the market, the harder the fall if you can't maintain that relationship. And our relationship with China is a classic example. People see it as easy money, but I've got a mantra, business in China is good until it isn't. And and that that is because things can change and you can't assume you've got a captive market. You have to accept cultural differences and we're seeing that play out in front of our very eyes right now and it's not, not playing out well. We have this vision that we uh, we can dominate the Chinese and our, our way is better than, than uh, their way. It in no way appreciates that our culture is different and I'm not saying the Chinese are without uh, blame in this kind of relationship, but it's a really good example of how a lack of appreciation of those two cultures and different approaches is resulting in some major fallout. So taking this into the business space, in your own business negotiations, did you ever find you had to up your negotiation skills because you had not recognised there was a cultural issue that you'd stumbled into? Um, too many to count. <laughs> um, and and uh, in those situations, it becomes very obvious when you've overlooked a, a cultural issue. If you take us back to Australia, there are actually lots of situations where we overlook cultural issues or issues that are important to the people we're working with that, you know, we've totally disregarded. So I think a regular step back health check around, and it comes back to basic communication, whoever you're working with, to make sure that the approach you're taking is, um, you know, acceptable and well-received and that you understand the trigger points that may be causing the person you're working with to have some issues. That can be as simple as, you know, working in Asia, I had a very large database, if you like, of uh, presentations that I could use to talk about areas of, of interest in the field of nutrition. And in countries like um, Vietnam and the Philippines, I could assemble a group of people and have them list topics that they wanted to talk about on a board and then pull out 10 presentations that would answer those questions and do it without notice. I applied that in China and it was a disaster. They need more structure. What's on the agenda is the agenda and you do not deviate from it. And the angst that it caused when I insisted that we go down the path of having the audience talk about, tell me what they want to talk about and you know, it, it was terminal basically for that client. It, they they couldn't manage it. The audience didn't know how to deal with it. And to the audience, I was totally unprepared. It speaks to some of the challenges for people taking up leadership roles in a country where the culture, particularly the culture of doing business, is so different to our own. They are very different. And, and you, you know, as a first step, and you can apply it to uh, France, yes. or you can apply it, you know, Socialist Republic, you mm-hmm. can apply it to China, a communist government. People live in a very different environment. They have very different mindsets and they have very different responses to leadership. I mean, you have to appreciate that that living environment will affect how those people respond to 
your style of leadership. Rob, your insights into leadership in the international arena rounds out our conversation nicely. You've taken us on a unique leadership journey that brings into focus the pathways to leadership for scientists, as well as people with STEM skills and those who bring diverse thinking into the leadership space. You leave listeners with excellent takeaways for their own careers. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you, Penny. Very nice to see you again. For show notes from this episode, head to my website, whatleadersknow.com. Thanks for tuning in to What Leaders Know, the podcast for people on leadership journeys. I look forward to catching up in the next episode. Stay safe.